Reading from the ESV. Slaves, obey your, your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. I fear that sometimes in our churches, in our type of Christianity, we can rely on what I call catchphrase Christianity. We can rely on phrases or platitudes, tweets that we live our life by. Uh, and sometimes, and, and in particular, I draw our attention to this, this small subset of catchphrases that, that are gospel-centered. I'm not saying they're bad, but I am saying sometimes we can, we can just slap the phrase, let's apply the gospel to blank. The gospel allows us and empowers us to do good. I am thankful. I'm very thankful for the evident growth within our body of recognizing that the gospel is not just the door to salvation. After you pass through, then you get to the better stuff. There's nothing better than the gospel. The gospel is for every day, but I don't want that even in itself to be a catchphrase. I want to look deeper. I want you all, when you hear us say, well, the gospel helps you in your marriage, you say, how? You ask God, how? How does it? Um, We, I, I, I... as I said, I'm very thankful for the growth in, in personal discussions and sermons as we um, become more given to, to preaching and our preparation that we're asking ourselves as we prepare, how does the gospel apply? As we've seen in community group dialogue, people are asking each other, help me understand, you know, not just I'm supposed to do better. I'm just supposed to obey my parents, as last week says, or I'm just supposed to submit. I'm just supposed to love and the gospel helps me do that. It's okay for us to ask how and why. How does the gospel apply? And so maybe we should thank God for bringing us to the point where we're saying the right thing. We're pointing our hearts and our minds and searching for answers in the gospel. But now we need to ask the best question, which is how does the gospel apply? We continue in these what could be uncomfortable sections, starting in chapter 5, where we talked about uh, husbands and wives, and then last week talking about parents and children. These are situations that require submission, not our favorite word. And we continue with these uncomfortable topics with submission between slaves and masters. Now, this pretty much applies to everyone, just like husbands and wives apply to most people. Children and parents applied, you know, everybody's a child or the child of someone last week. But this thing of work, this thing of being a slave, being a master, it applies to everyone. It's been part of our lives since creation. God ordained work in the garden. As a great preacher said on April 14th from this pulpit, Josh Tuttle, in his message, Christian Work Ethic, I just want to remind you of what Josh opened with. Four out of five working Americans work more than 40 hours per week. 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. 2,050 hours per year. 
And the sum total is that 33%, a full third of our waking hours over the course of our lives are spent at work. A shout out to the sound team for having that sermon there so I could listen to it and catch that opening and get those stats. But all that to say, work is a huge part of your life. If you're retired, work was a huge part of your life. And don't get depressed on how much time you spent at work. But this is our life for many of us. Work is a very large part of our life. And so this message is very appropriate. Now, I want to say, what can we take from the text today? The version we read here uses the word slaves. In some versions, it's translated bond servants. In some uh, versions, it's translated as servants. So let me, let me dip into this a little bit. Slavery. Slavery at the time that Ephesians was written, it was a widespread, and I cannot uh, overemphasize that enough. I almost said underestimate, but it's overemphasized. I cannot overemphasize enough how prevalent slavery was in that economy, in that civilization. People owned other people. There were approximately one-third of the population were slaves, a full third. And they were seen as essential to civilization developing. These were not just field workers, as we might see in our country's history, but these were doctors and lawyers. Landowners were slaves. Artists were slaves. Sometimes slaves even owned slaves. Now, slaves could buy their freedom. A person could sell themselves into slavery to pay debts. But there was an entrance and an exit path legislated in the laws of that time for uh, getting into and out of slavery. But still, the status of a person who was a slave was that they were not people, but they were property. We know the, um, you may be familiar with the word chattel. Um, we were, if you look it up in the dictionary, chattel refers to property. Um, the same word, uh, root word, is, uh, we use for cattle, which are you know, an asset, a farming, agrarian uh, life would have uh, cattle as an asset. So chattel, cattle, treating people as chattel um, is a phrase that's used in the um, economy of slavery. But the point was that masters of slaves had almost unlimited power to punish, to do with what those people, those slaves, whatever the master wanted. But slavery was beginning to change in this first century time. Now, slavery, even farther back in the time of Moses, when the law was given, it existed back in the Old Testament, too. Um, We're going to look at some scriptures in a moment, but in summary, you could... uh, the Israelites could have slaves from other countries, but there were certain laws that applied to having fellow Hebrews as slaves. You couldn't buy your neighbor unless he sold himself to you voluntarily, and then you had to you had to pay him as an employee and not as a slave. They were released from slavery in the seventh year, in the year of Jubilee, so it was not a lifelong slavery thing. But there were regulations for owning and and being a slave that were given by God in the law. We'll come back to that. But first question, can we rightly apply what this, these passages, these verses say? Can we rightly apply the slave and master um, principle, whatever Paul is teaching us? Can we rightly apply that to our situations? None of us, even on our worst day, would call ourselves slaves. We are employer, employees or employers. We are paid or we pay other people. A question for the younger folks here. Can you apply these principles to your relationship as a student, to a teacher. Josiah is momentarily free, but soon he will enter back into a relationship as a student and teacher. 
Can we rightly apply these principles? Yes, we can. I want you to consider one element of uh, studying the Bible. Sometimes the Bible prescribes specific things, but other times the Bible gives us principles that we are to apply. For example, in the, in the law, when it says, if an ox falls into a pit that you left uncovered, you have to pay restitution for that ox falling into the pit. Now, I don't think anyone here, unless I've missed something, no one here owns an ox. But the point of restitution still exists. And, and also the principle in the law, even back then, if a sheep fell into a pit, it wasn't specified. Well, I'm sure the principle still applied, that if you, through your negligence, cost another man his property to be killed or damaged, you owed restitution. In the New Testament, when it talks, in the Beatitudes, when it talks about um, offering your gift at the altar, and then you remember that you have a, a something at naught with your brother, and you leave your gift at the altar, and you go to that one, and you make it right. Well, we don't have an altar, and we don't bring gifts in the same vein, but that principle still applies, even though it's not specific. And so I want us to look at this passage where it talks about slaves and masters. First of all, I want us to look at it and put ourselves into it. And I hope I have satisfied the burden that this is not a um, twisting of Scripture or a misapplication. A couple of assumptions that we need to draw. First of all, we may not realize it upon the first reading, but Paul is talking to Christian slaves. Paul is talking to slaves who have become followers of Christ and are sitting there in a church body and listening to this letter. Even more mind-boggling, in that same church body, Paul is talking to Christian masters. I'm not sure how many of those were necessarily paired up, that the master and the slave in the same household were both believers and both came to the same church, but at least there were some of each demographic in that church body. And also, at the very root, Paul is writing to Christians. Remember that the calls for action, the changes in behavior that, he is, that we're going to look at, these are nonsensical to the unbeliever. These are nonsensical to the unregenerate heart. Paul's teaching in much of Scripture presumes a changed heart, a life that has undergone a significant, course-changing, central transformation. So with those caveats, let's look first of all at slaves and masters. How then should we, along with the Ephesians, view work? And I have three points under this. Slaves and masters. First of all, Christians should work as if Christ were their master. Christians should work as if Christ were their master. Number two, Christians should work with the right attitude. And number three, Christians should work with the knowledge that God sees all. Christians should work with the knowledge that God sees all. So first of all, notice how many times Paul mentions Christ in these verses from 5 through 9 of chapter 6 of Ephesians. How many times Paul mentions Christ as the ultimate master. He opens with, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would obey Christ. He goes on to say, Obey as servants of Christ. In verse number 6. In verse number... In verse number 7, render service as to the Lord. This is inescapable. He mentions it three times in these six verses. Uh, but it's, it's utterly confounding logic. How, how does that slave, how do we see God as our master, God as our, our boss, our manager? 
But it's similar to what he's done in this section. You know, husbands, love as Christ loved. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Children, obey in the Lord. It's not just a, a platitude of like, wives, obey your husbands, period. No, it's wives, obey as to the Lord. And here we have slaves, obey your masters as to the Lord, as you would Christ. So even for a slave who, who would be subject to bad masters, he's not saying Christian slaves You who have good Christian masters, obey them as to the Lord. He's saying, Christian slaves, you who have masters who beat you, who use you cruelly, you obey them as if Christ himself were your master. This is part of a larger truth. As unbelievers, the unbelieving non-Christian man lives for himself. He is his own God. He pleases himself. He seeks to... The only time he would please others is in an effort to bring himself glory. Whereas a distinguishing mark of a Christian is that his entire perspective shifts from wanting to please himself and worship himself. It shifts to pleasing God. His new focus is truly, what would God have me to do in this situation? The greatest commandment, as Jesus told the young ruler, The greatest commandment is thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and thy soul and mind and strength. When a person becomes a Christian, everything changes, including the formerly unpalatable job and the cruel taskmaster. Everything changes. So our first principle is that Christians should work as if Christ were their master. This understanding is the bedrock foundation for the rest of the call to action for Christian slaves in this chapter, in this passage. The second principle is that Christians should work with the right attitude. And there's four descriptive words here that we see. First of all, obey with fear and trembling. Obey with fear and trembling. Now, we can read that in this context and say, so the the slaves are to to cower. It's like you're about to be beaten. You're constantly afraid. You're like a whipped puppy that you're not sure who's going to hit you next. That is not what Paul is saying. We can learn that by looking over at some of his other. You remember in Corinthians that uh, I come to speak to you, not of my own wisdom, but I come to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. Paul came to the Corinthian church preaching to them in fear and trembling. I'm sure in that context he was not afraid of being beaten. So what was he saying? We can look at that chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we can see that Paul preached with a healthy fear. And what was his fear? His fear was of misrepresenting the person who he was representing, misrepresenting God. His fear and his trembling were that he might miscommunicate the truth that had been charged to him to bring to the Corinthians. In the same vein, Christian slaves and also we today are to obey our earthly masters with a very serious, serious concern for how we represent Christ. Secondly, under this topic of obeying with a good attitude, the, the passage goes on to say, obey with a sincere heart. This is also translated with a singleness of heart. We are to obey as unto Christ, and we are to work with focus, undivided attention, and concentration. We're not to be distracted during our work. We're to work with full energy for our earthly masters. I had the 
the, the privilege of preaching this passage three years ago when we were still meeting at Lincoln Street uh, as part of the Colossians study. And, um, and I went into more depth there. I just want to mention this also applies to Christians not stealing time or resources from our employers here. So sometimes we can do that. Uh, students, um, uh, if, if you are to go to school, if you're to go to college and you're to get very heavily involved in a Christian organization there to the point where you are ignoring your responsibilities as a student, I do not think God is glorified by your, your failing to do that which he has called you to do. It's not a, it's not a dichotomy where you, you either completely focus on your own stuff or you, or you honor God. He wants you to do both, but we are to be faithful in that which we are called to do. Just a word to the, to the few college students. I don't mean to single you out. But, but students as well, homeschooled students, it won't work many times if you say, I didn't go over my letters because I was reading the Bible. Your parents will be momentarily very happy, but the schoolwork still has to be done. Thirdly, we should obey not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Now, it took some work to craft this sentence because there's different ways of that we call people people pleasers. The familiar person at work who is obsequious, fawning, favor currying, the person who seeks to gain favor not from their effort or their true work product, but by attempting to manipulate the master's impression of his own qualifications or importance. This is a person that we should not be as Christians. We should not be that person that manipulates, that seeks to curry favor, to win power or status, but instead we are to obey as if God alone is watching. We're to behave in school the same way that we do when the teacher's not in the room as we do when the teacher is in the room. We are to work as if our manager sitting in the neighboring cubicle. Those of us who have, well, my manager's in Texas. It's very easy for me to just make sure I pick up the phone when he calls and otherwise I can do what I want. And that's not honoring to God if I am to work to please him only, work to please my boss only when he's looking. Fourthly, it says render service with a good will. Render service with a good will. This is, this is a call not to serve grudgingly. And, and this can be very, very hard because it, it's saying don't, oh, don't serve and work always wishing for a better job or being angry with God for not yet placing you where you feel you deserve to be. Look to Joseph, the example of Joseph in Genesis. Talk about starting at the bottom. He, he in prison... He became a trustee of the prison. He became faithful in that position. The Bible doesn't talk about him whining about why am I here. Daniel, a slave in Babylon, became faithful in what he was called to do. Nehemiah, a cupbearer, a place of, 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 of service, that he became a, a leader in that country. These are God followers in the Bible who were faithful in very little, very menial tasks, and they were content to serve in those places, and then God elevated them. 
So the third principle that we have, not only are we to work as unto Christ, not only are we to work with a good attitude, but we are also to work with the knowledge that God sees all and God rewards. In verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant, whether he is a slave or is free. God is just. God is fair. The parallel passage in Colossians 3 introduces the word to God gives an inheritance for the work. Now here Paul uses the word reward. Remember, slaves were not just owned by people and paid. They weren't paid. They were owned by people and they were given food and a place to sleep so that they might be property. They were not paid. They didn't have status. Slaves didn't have an inheritance. So these are very meaningful promises that Paul, in the inspired word of God, is laying out for slaves, that they would receive a reward from God, that they would receive an inheritance for their work. The application for us today, one of the great worries that we may have in work is that we're being undervalued, that we're not receiving the compensation or the attention or the status, the recognition, the promotion that we feel that we deserve. I myself have thought that in recent months. I feel undervalued. I don't believe that's honoring to God. These are not or should not be the goals and the consuming quests of Christian workers. We work for God's reward. We work to please Him. And if He chooses to elevate us, He can take care of it. He can get around someone who... Um, is an obsequious, fawning, favor currying co-worker. He can, get, he can let our manager see who's doing the real work. We don't have to worry about that. God's not forgetting about us. The binding truth that makes all three of these principles possible begins to take shape for us or hit us over the head with the obviousness. Christ is our master. Christ is our true master. We can work in whatever we are called to do, knowing that we are serving God. To the Christian slave in Ephesus who is hearing this letter being read to him, and he wakes up the next morning, he would perhaps not have the usual thoughts of, well, today I will work hard lest I would be beaten and thrashed. Today I will work so that I don't make my master angry and so he doesn't starve me tonight in order to punish me. I hope that I please him today and I don't anger him. Instead, the slave of Ephesus could wake up and say, I am incidentally a slave of this earthly master, but in reality, I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of my service must be done as to him, for he has purchased me, he has redeemed me, he has set me free, and in him there is no longer Greek or Jew, there's no longer male or female, there's no longer slave or free. This earthly existence has changed for me because of the eternal essence of salvation. Now, Paul is consistent as he has been through chapter 5 and 6, and he turns his attention not only to the person in the lower level of power, the one who must submit, but he turns his attention to masters in verse 9. So to Christian masters who may have been sitting in that same church body, Paul gives sobering instruction that is just as astoundingly countercultural. Masters should treat their slaves the way they would want to be treated. The words, do the same to them. Masters, do the same. Masters should not threaten. Masters need to remember that they're not really in charge. 
Fairness and justice were to be hallmarks of the Christian master. Now, remember the whole culture. And this is why I'm saying it's very, very countercultural. The whole culture was that by law, by culture, these people were owned by the master. He had a right. It's not like he was you know, uh, perverting the laws of that time to own that person and to, to threaten them to do whatever he wanted to. That was the law. That was the, the clear, accepted culture. They could beat them. They could threaten them, intimidate them. They could execute the slave. They were property. But Paul says, don't do, masters, don't do what you have the earthly right to do. Don't threaten. And he explains why. He's saying, you have a master in heaven over you. You have a master in heaven that's over your slave. And this master in heaven... He doesn't see any difference between you. This master in heaven doesn't have any partiality. He doesn't see a difference between master and slave. And so this is a groundbreaking, earth-shattering, culture-clashing statement. That God is master over all, whether it is bond or free, whether it is over slave or master. This is in contrast to the entire Roman society, the Roman Empire, that was set up on classes of people. That was set up on partiality. And this God and his followers were upending that society. In summary, Christian slaves are to obey and to work as unto Christ. Christian masters are to be just and fair and recognize their own equality with their slaves in God's eyes. Coming back to how can we apply this, I would say these are applicable truths to us. For us, even though our employer and employee relationship for most or all of us, our relationship with our jobs is a far, far cry from the slavery, the slave master relationship. If God called Christian slaves in Ephesians to respond to their conditions of their life in this way, how much more does he expect us to respond in a Christ like manner too? here in Hillsborough in 2013. There is no disconnect over the centuries that have passed since this letter was written. The applicable principle stands. Now, I also want to turn now, and I'm thankful to God that um, many here were in, in the church body in 2010 when we went through this passage. I feel like I've kind of gone rapidly through it. I hope you felt like I've gone rapidly through it. But we turn now to a thornier part of the passage, and I'm thankful that we have the opportunity to think about this Larger questions. So this is what the scholars call an excursus. This is what people in the South would say is a rabbit trail. It's a digression, but there is a purpose for it. And I want us to consider um, something here. This is the next point, slavery and the church. Slavery. In our minds today, slavery is almost, I can take out the almost, slavery is universally found to be immoral, inhuman, and depraved. Now, maybe worldwide there are cultures that still accept slavery as part of their culture. But to the ancient world, slavery, as I said, was essential to civilization. But through the lens that we look today, looking back at Ephesus, looking back at Ephesians, the Roman Empire, through the lens of gospel preaching Christ followers, I believe that it's fair for this issue, this passage, to raise this question. Why didn't Paul command the Christian masters to free their slaves? Why didn't he call upon the church to abolish slavery? Or at least within the environs of their own influence, the slaves that they owned, 
Why did he call on Christian slaves and say, you're no longer a slave, you are, are free, you revolt against your master? If we seek some context, which makes the, the case even more perhaps confusing, slavery is mentioned throughout the Bible. And I say mentioned, I'm not saying slavery is banned or restricted. Slavery is mentioned throughout the Bible. In Exodus, there are laws about slaves. I touched on that. If you have a Hebrew slave, you get him for six years. In the seventh year, you set him free. If he's single when you buy him, at that seventh year, he's single when he leaves. If he's married when you buy him, you keep the family together. You don't split families of slaves. You let them, the, him take his wife and family out at the seventh year when you set him free. If you bought him and he was single and then he married while he was a slave, you get to keep his wife. And you ask him, like, do you want to be free and leave your wife here? And if the slave says, no, I want to stay with my wife, you take a all, A-W-L, hole punch. Well, not a hole punch, but a leather punch. You put him up against the wall of the, the door and you punch a hole in his ear. And he is bound to you for life. This is not pagan law. This is God's Mosaic law as given to the children of Israel. I've seen people in Portland that the whole whole punch in the ear thing wouldn't bother them, wouldn't touch anything. Creeps me out, but I don't judge. I just cringe. In Leviticus, in Leviticus 25, it's a little, uh, if your brother who lives near you is poor and he sells himself into service, you're not allowed to make him a slave. You can hire him and you pay him, but he's your brother. And I, I, don't, I don't mean blood brother, just your neighbor. You have to pay him. But you're allowed to get slaves from other countries, but just not fellow Israelites. Again, Mosaic law. In the New Testament, lest we say, oh, that's Mosaic law, that's just nuts. They also didn't eat bacon. We move into this uh, Testament, New Testament, 1 Corinthians 7. Jot this down because we'll, you'll, you'll want to go to this if, um, later on this week. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24 Paul says to the Corinthian church, let each person lead the life that God has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Farther down in that passage, Paul says, were you a slave when God called you? Do not be concerned about that. But if you can gain your freedom, take the opportunity. So, brothers, in whatever condition each of you was called there, let him remain with God. He's like, if you were a slave when you became a Christ follower, don't let that consume you. Don't let that become your central thought. Take your freedom if you have the opportunity, but don't be consumed with the idea that you're a slave. We know the book of Philemon is based on a master-slave relationship. The uh, slave, the runaway slave Onesimus uh, met up with Paul, became a believer. Paul sent Onesimus back and says, he is, Philemon, he to you is more than a slave. Now he's a beloved brother. But he did not say, He's no, no longer a slave. Now he is free. He sent him back. First Timothy 6 talks about Christian slaves should not take advantage of their Christian masters. This is interesting because, like, you know, in our, in our time, doing business between Christians can, can get a little bit uh, complicated. can get a little complicated. But back then, it was a little complicated. He's saying Christian slaves, don't take advantage of your masters just because they're Christians, too. Instead, you should serve as even better Slaves, because what you're doing is benefiting other believers. First Peter chapter two, slaves, be subject to your masters, submit to your masters in all respect, with all respect. But here's the kicker, not just to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 
throughout Scripture. And I just say, wait, what? Why didn't Paul start a revolt of slaves or at the very least call the Christian masters to free their slaves? And perhaps the bigger question that I want us to consider, what is the church's responsibility when it comes to overturning conditions in our world that are clearly sinful and unbiblical? A few more minutes in Ephesus and I'll expand it to our, uh, at least to start the discussion now, you may not agree, but I do want to make you think. Because haven't you hit this passage and said, slaves, bad. And Paul just keeps on talking about slaves, obey. In Ephesus, we, we, I touched on this a little bit, so I'll go quickly. Slavery was a different system there. So maybe there's a pragmatic reason. There's a pragmatic and perhaps a justifiable reason why Paul was not calling for the abolition of slavery. A pragmatic view would say that the early church was not as influential in that time as the evangelical church is now. The church was being persecuted, running for their lives. They weren't exactly in a position to mandate societal change and the abolition of one-third of the people at that time being set free. Any attempt to overthrow such a widespread part of societal structure would have been weak and pointless. And it may be difficult for us to understand the tie-ins, but that history shows that the early church was not widespread. Ancient slave culture was different. It was very common to free slaves. Romans would free their slaves. Um, there's a staggering statistic over a course of like 20 years, 500,000 slaves were freed by their masters, um, either through buying one's freedom to a master just setting them free, or the master would set them free and set them up as a merchant of some kind, Cultural change was also underway. Legislation was being put in place in the first century to regulate the treatment of slaves by masters. We also have this verse in Romans chapter 13 that says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. This slavery was part of the law. And for the Christians to go in and say, "We're This part of our law we're going to disobey That would not have been right. That would not have been. I mean, you, you know, Christians today sometimes will say, well, I don't pay taxes to an unjust government. But that's not what we're called to do. Now, there is one thing. Why did why did Christians break the law and pay for it with their lives in the Colosseum as, as, as martyrs? When they were told to worship Caesar, they could not do that. Because that's clearly stated in God's word, that you are to worship God and no one else. And so on that, they were willing to die. But this is not to say that Christians then or now should condone slavery. This is not to say that the church then directly condemned slavery either. Now, in case it's not obvious, our biblical objection, our biblically-based objection to slavery is that at its essential core, all of slavery involves the subjugation of one human being, an image bearer of God, the subjugation of that person under another person. This devalues human life. This devalues a person by making them the property and the chattel of another. And we believe that to be biblically wrong, fundamentally wrong. But how did Paul handle 
this logical consequence of biblical principle, of the consequence of an image bearer of God having an inherent dignity and how could they be subjugated, yet the surrounding culture was uh, prevalent with slavery. So Martin Lloyd-Jones has a very helpful commentary and has some principles on this passage and topic. And as I read them and talk about them, think about today. Number one, Christianity does not abolish our relationship to existing social political, and economic conditions. Christianity does not abolish our relationship to existing social, political, and economic conditions. We remain husbands after salvation if we were husbands before. We are not told, oh, your wife is an unbeliever and you became a Christian, you leave her. It does not say that. It says you stay. That relationship, that earthly relationship, that institution is still to be honored. If we were poor before we became a believer, we're still poor after. If we were rich, we're rich after. Our nationality, our ethnicity does not change. We remain as such. The, the things I read for you going through 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, 1 Peter, the admonitions to slaves to obey and submit, these verses clearly indicate that Christians were to remain and behave in the conditions that they were in when they became believers. So number two, Christianity also does not condemn some of these conditions as being directly sinful. Christianity does not condemn some of these conditions like slavery as being directly sinful. And here let me start to introduce the principle. Man's relationship to God is what matters most, fundamentally, primarily. Man's relationship to God matters most, and when that is grasped, everything else becomes different. We look at things differently, and we'll come back to this. Christianity does not condemn some of those conditions as being directly sinful. But Christianity, thirdly, does not justify these conditions or condone the status quo. Christianity is not to be preoccupied with condoning the status quo. We are not here in this church in Hillsborough in 2013. This church is not to be consumed with defending capitalism versus another economic structure. We are not here to defend the Republican Party platform. We are not here to preach only against drunkenness or drug use or sexual sin in isolation. As the text covers it, we should cover the text. But... We seek the drunkard. We seek the Muslim, the Mormon. We do not preach messages fixated on that. I mean, think about the logic or the illogic behind that. Do you not know people of other religions or people that are living and, and, and bound and enslaved with sin? And they say, well, your church is anti-democrat. Your church is anti-homosexual. That sort of reputation is earned by churches that lose that primary focus. That, church, that reputation is earned by churches and men like me who might get on a soapbox and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach on, on, uh, on, on the scourge of, of drunkenness and how we should have prohibition. That is not the main point. We seek the drunkard to be in our church. We seek... The, the person who, who has different political views that are not based on what God wants them to do. We seek to love them. 
And if you make the church and your life, individual life, about discouraging and attacking those who hold different views, you are conveying to them a lack of love. Christianity is concerned. Well, one other thing, I'm not going to leave this. We also do not, our main purpose as a church is not to defend America as Christians either. It's it's very easy to become um, ethnocentric or uh, jingoistic about our view as, as Christians who are blessed to be in this country, that God saw fit to put us here. But that is not the main concern of, of the church. Fourthly, uh, Christianity's concern should be how does the Christian react in these conditions? How does the Christian live in this world? The mission of the church, fifthly, is, is to not be concerned primarily with the conditions, but to focus on faithful Christ-like behavior in the midst of these conditions. Our, the mission of the church is to produce people who have been changed by God, to produce people who begin to see things differently and begin to apply these principles to their daily living. The key, coming back to Ephesians and to slavery, and I appreciate your attention because we're working through this, and I hope we're working through things that maybe you've thought of before and then decided it was, it was too complex to think about. But the key is that the change of culture with slavery began to change in the first century. It began to change from within, is what one of the Roman historians said. It began to change from people being changed. There's our lesson from history. The, Paul speaks in this passage to the slaves and masters and says, you are equal. The early church in that first century is spreading this this gospel and spreading this image of this master above who saw slaves and masters as equal. And this truth changes the foundational assumption of slavery, which is that one man is more powerful than another. Changing people from being property to being brothers. Changing them from being chattel to being fellow saints. Paul is launching a salvo at slavery with the biblical focus of changing individual hearts. Not legislation, not banning slavery, not protests or revolts, but change from the heart. There are other examples through history. If we look back to the, the awakening in, in Great Britain, um, the, 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 the people that were reached by um, men like George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers, they didn't come and preach and say to the miners, oh, your conditions are awful. You need to change this and get educated and revolt against the mine owners. They preached the need for salvation. They preached that they were angry uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And that was their greatest problem, not their poverty, not their oppression. Yet, when people became Christians, when people became believers in God, their focus changed. No longer were they consumed with cruelty, cruel games like cockfights or dogfights. They became consumed with reading God's word. And you see how the heart was changed and society changed, not because these preachers came in and legislated change. Preach the gospel and society changes. Now let's expand that today because it's interesting to look back at history and see men like William Wilberforce or see men like um, George Mueller who changed their world because they were believers of God. But what is our church's responsibilities in areas of social injustice? 
The church's mission is to call men to repentance, to evangelize these men so that when God, these men and women, so that when God regenerates hearts, they are brought into the church. And as the Great Commission says, we, they are taught all that God has commanded. Although some evangelical leaders today, even churches that are similar to ours, would say that our main goal is to redeem the culture, that we are to be on mission and contextualized so that we might reach those within the culture that we're trying to reach. Although some have said the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of those outside of it, I do not believe that to be biblical at its core. It's too simplistic. The church's mission is to call men to repentance and evangelize. And the church's mission is to be faithful to that teaching. The church's main focus is to be faithful to our Lord and to his word. This is the sign quanon, the reason for existing of the church. We look forward to the day when God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not my good and successful servant. My good and even the more spiritual word might be my good and fruitful servant. Too often our churches and our Christianity can focus on results or success. All you have to do is pick up a book. Look at a book jacket of an author. Um, instead of emphasizing the faithfulness of a man, they talk about how many people are in his church. And it's easy for us to say, I realize our church in the world's eyes is a small church. And so, of course, you expect me to say a church shouldn't be 2,000 or 3,000 people. But trust my heart, and I hope that if God allows our church to grow, that we will be faithful before we are primarily focused on success. But an even more foundational truth, the, the main concern of the church is to evangelize because the main concern of the Christian should be his relationship to God. This should be the main concern of all men, saved or unsaved, believing or unbelieving. The main concern of all men should be their relationship to God, whether it is right or whether it is on a path that leads to judgment and eternal damnation. Human relationships are secondary. Our relationship to God first. And so the biblical way illustrated here in this passage in Ephesians 5, the biblical way to change social injustice is primarily to reach the people, the person with the gospel. Have God change them and thus stop the injustice. Let me repeat that. The biblical way to change social injustice is primarily to reach the person with the gospel, have God change them, and thus stop the injustice. But do we believe this? Do we behave in such a way that we trust more in laws than we do the Lord? Do we trust more in regulations and statutes more than the cleansing and empowering work of the Spirit? I mentioned him already, but slavery crumbled in the vast British Empire, global British Empire, against all odds, against any economic sense. Slavery crumbled when a rich, foppish, selfish cad named William Wilberforce was brought to repentance and new life as a convert. That changed his thinking. When William Wilberforce became a believer, he changed an empire. Societies change for the better as the gospel is preached to people and they change. Our faithfulness as slaves, our faithfulness as slaves, if we work as if Christ is our master, 
our faithfulness will be seen as a witness of a transformed life. And this is for real. The Bible has examples, I've mentioned them, of Joseph, Nehemiah, and Daniel. Perhaps in your life you've seen that your faithfulness as a Christian has been seen. First Peter says that people will ask um, for the hope that is in you. We've talked before about living counterculturally, not for the point of getting attention, except to bring attention to our God that has saved us. Beloved, please ponder these things. Could anybody say to you, your Christianity is anti-whatever? Your Christianity is anti-Muslim. If I'm Muslim, I know you don't want to be friends with me because you're such a Christian. Whether We obviously live in a world that is in a sinful society. We are surrounded by social injustice. I just jotted down some of the things that our church's focus could be about. Abolishing abortion making sure that we stop the redefinition of marriage, making sure that we stop the growth of sensuality in our media and in our lives and what we see, abolishing materialism, prohibiting alcohol. We can become wrapped up in secondary and tertiary issues. But as, as I said earlier, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that he does not preach a so-called temperance message. That's what they used to call uh, teetotaling, you know, people that didn't drink. He said, I don't preach a temperance message because I want the drunkard to come to Christ. Don't preach the issue. Preach to the man and his need of a Savior. The main concern of individuals, saved or otherwise, should be our relationship to God. Our focus needs to remain on that. Remember, it's the greatest commandment that we love our Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength. It may sound too simplistic, but other things fall into the right priority if that first priority is right. Let God change the individual. The church's role is not to legislate a theocracy. We're not to take over the government to establish a theocracy in America. You don't have to go far in Google to find movements a couple states over that that advocate that. The church's role is not to protest or to be encumbered and obsessed with socioeconomic change. Don't mishear me. There is injustice, and we are to, as part of our society, participate in voting and in government, but that is not the main focus of the church. The greatest need is not that we stop abortion, but that we reach those people with the gospel, because God will change the heart. Just like slavery, slavery became an unpalatable part of culture as God changed hearts. So too our injustices that we see surrounding us can change as we love God first, love others and seek to bring them to God. At the outset I said that we shouldn't be satisfied with tweetable platitudes, but we should be looking for practical particulars as we look at any passage of Scripture And so I want to close with the main point of the text today and the application for us. How could Paul, how could he call slaves and masters to have such a revolutionary change in how they interacted with each other and their relationships with each other? He wasn't calling to end the conditions, but he was saying, you are to behave differently. How is it possible for us today to work 
as he's described here in this chapter. This is a countercultural call for slaves then and now like us to work as unto the Lord with fear and trembling that we might not bring dishonor to God, that we would work with single-minded focus and goodwill, that we would work with energy and that we would work and serve for God's eyes and not for man's praise. And the same goes for students. I say work, also learning and the work that goes into school. But the question that I want you to ask, how does the gospel allow me to do that? How does the gospel call me to that? If Paul could call slaves and masters at that time under those conditions to completely countercultural behavior, surely in our time our Lord would call us to the same behavior. I believe that the way the gospel applies to this is our identity in the gospel, our identity before God in Christ transcends our earthly identities. We are to live our gospel identities. To be more specific, there is at the core of the gospel another transaction that took place, another purchasing of a person. We were all slaves to sin. We all served a cruel master, Satan, the prince of this world. If you can in your imagine see it, there was a slave auction and there was a God man at that auction who stood and said, I'll buy that person. We are bought with a price. We sing this. We read this. We know this verse. We're bought with a price. We are redeemed by his blood. Such a price, such a love. What a costly transaction. What a costly purchase. But that debt of sin that enslaved us, surely that was fully paid by the Son of God. And to add to the awesomeness, when Jesus purchased us, He purchased us at that slave auction. He freed us from our former master and purchased us. He had a purpose for us. And that purpose was that he would set us free. He bought slaves and set them free. So Paul can say then and Paul can say to us now, Jesus is our real master. And we work as unto him. And he sees all men equally. This is what enables us to work in supernaturally transformed ways. Regardless of our job, regardless of how rewarding it might be, regardless of how menial it might be. Hear me, I believe Christians should be the best in their departments, in, in, their, in their work groups, in their jobs, in their classes. Not the smartest necessarily. Not, not the, but, but they should be the best in terms of representing God. The best examples of goodwill and service and wholehearted, single-minded focus and dedication to the work that God has called us to. And as for the social injustice around us, let me just reiterate, our greatest hope is not to address those directly, those issues directly, but instead to reach individuals with the gospel. I truly believe this, and the question we must ask ourselves as elders and as a church body here at Grace and Truth Are we being faithful to our primary mission of evangelizing and teaching and then remaining faithful to that mission? Because I believe if we focus on that mission, God will change lives and God can choose to change communities and cities and society at large. We may not have the faith to see that now, but we see it throughout history. And that God, that same God that changed slavery starting in the first century to now can make other changes as he sees fit. 
How is my relationship with God? That's the question I want you to ask today. Am I being faithful in what he has given me to do in my earthly work? Am I being faithful to love him with all my heart and soul and mind and body? May God enable us to live faithful lives, that we might be instrumental in reaching men and women with the gospel, and in so doing, that God might change our world for his glory. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for this this text. I thank you that it's difficult and causes us to think and that we've had time as a church body to to consider this. Reprehensible uh, societal institutions that we know do not honor you, how are we to deal with that? I'm thank I'm thankful that it all comes back to our relationship with you, that if we make that preeminent Truly, other priorities fall in place. I feel like I've laid out some truths to all of us that will continue to be difficult to uh, to work through. We have competing sorts of um, priorities in our lives in this culture. We're told to seek ambition and, fo- and uh, power, to get the greatest pile of toys. But Father, I pray that you would one by one individually reach our hearts and transform us, knowing that you brought us here as a church body for a purpose. And we pray that we will see your will done in the lives of people in Hillsborough and Forest Grove and banks that we touch and that we'll see change. Maybe we won't see the, the, the big reason for it while we're alive, but that we, we will trust that we're we're tools in your hands. We thank you, Father, so much for sending your Son to buy our freedom from sin. We thank you so much that we are no longer enslaved and that our identities are as redeemed, purchased, and set free slaves of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.